0: Good morning. Good to be with you. Homeownership. It's important in our society. It's part of the American dream. If you aren't a homeowner today, then you can probably imagine what it's like to be one. But it's not as simple as plunking down some cash and buying a home for most of us. The way we acquire our home is typically by securing a 30-year loan from a bank. That's a long time. And if we think we actually own the home, all we have to do is miss a mortgage payment or two. The bank will quickly remind us that we don't actually own the home outright. Not yet. But we do anticipate a day when we'll own it completely and the celebration that comes with that. We live with that expectation. And we enjoy many benefits until that day comes. We actually get to live in the home while we make the mortgage payments. And our family can live with us, even our extended family, if we're willing to share some space. And we can improve the home and make it fit our needs and our lifestyle. But the benefits come with responsibilities. Confidence to remain in the home for the long haul requires a source of income. And there's general maintenance, like repairing the water heater when it fails, things like that. There are other responsibilities, too. Most often, we live in a community with neighbors. If we disregard our neighbors and let the dog roam around, we get reminded that to keep our dog in our own yard and not the neighbor's. Or if we don't mow our lawn regularly, we'll get a nasty note left on our front door. If we live in a community, then we're responsible to follow its conventions or suffer the consequences. But if we maintain good relations with our neighbors, our communities can be rather enjoyable. That's a small notion of what it's like to live expectantly in a community. But in a much greater sense, we do that as Christians. We live expectantly together as believers, and more than believers, we live together as the family of God. We're anticipating the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's when the salvation he promised to us will be fully realized and forever ours. But in the meantime, we live confidently with complete security in the salvation we've been promised. And we enjoy the benefits of that salvation now in the present. We enjoy it individually, but more importantly, we enjoy it together as a community. And the community is not made up of merely neighbors, but of family members who actively enjoy that same salvation in Christ. So, of course, the benefits are accompanied by responsibilities, but because we're confident and secure in what Christ has done for us, the responsibilities are not burdensome. Rather, they point us to our glorious future. So if you would, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. It's page 1006. The Bible's under the seat in front of you. Grab the outline, inserted in your bulletin, entitled, living expectantly together. As you're turning there, you'll notice that our passage begins with therefore. So a conclusion is being drawn based on what? Well, it's in the preceding passage. Verses 15 through 17 describe how the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us that we're participating in a new covenant community. The Lord has put his laws on our hearts and written them on our minds. That idea was introduced back in chapter 7, and now the author of Hebrews is drawing his conclusion based on that. So, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus That living in expectation of Christ's return is something we do together as a community. And even as we anticipate a future event, we're enjoying many of those future benefits at the present time as a community. Those benefits come from the work that Jesus Christ already finished on our behalf. So we'll break this down, the text down into two parts one, community benefits, two, community responsibilities. And we'll begin with benefits. So, point one, community benefits. Now, the context of our passage is community living, point A. It's describing a community of people whose sins are forgiven by God because of Jesus Christ, those who do the will of God, and those who will receive the promises. But notice that it's more than a community. It's a family. He addresses them, in verse 19, as brothers. And this is all of us who believe, because the term brothers here can be rightly understood as brothers and sisters. And the family context this draws upon started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11. There it said that Jesus is not ashamed to call the people he's sanctifying his brothers and sisters. Jesus says, in the midst of the congregation, I and the children God has given me. And we're told that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, here's the purpose, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So if you're part of this community, You're not a loner. You can't be. You need a church family. That's clearly evident from the language in our passage. So often we read these passages thinking of ourselves as individuals. But a brief walk through the passage will help us reframe that thinking. Look at verse 19. It says, We have confidence. Then in verse 20, He opened the new and living way for us. Verse 21, We have a great priest, and He's over the house of God. That's God's household, family language. Verse 22, Let us draw near, and then our hearts and our bodies. Verse 23, Let us hold fast, and our hope. Verse 24, let us consider, and we're to stir up one another. How about verse 25, meet together and encourage one another. Do you see? It's all over this passage. We're doing this together. The author is speaking of the corporate nature of this family. And this is so true of how we speak about our own families. I mean, when I refer to things done in my household, I don't use me in my language. I say us and our. And I do that referring to my wife and my youngest son who lives with us. But often, I even use that language to describe my two grown children and my son-in-law and my grandchildren. They live far away from us because we still come together on special occasions, and I refer to our family that way because I care about all of them. And it expresses how our lives are bound together. So in the church, God's household, it's not me and Jesus. It's me in the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, God's children, all forgiven of our sins, and all doing the will of God together as members of the household. And we're not all just hanging around with nowhere to go and no sense of the future. It's the opposite. We're anticipating Christ's return. That was made clear at the end of chapter 9, where it said Christ will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But that's also where our passage is headed. Because we're to do these things all the more, as you see the day drawing near. End of verse 25. So we're not simply living our lives together. We're motivated to do God's will because we're living expectantly. And what are the present benefits we enjoy now while living in this community? One of them is confident living, point B. Look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, As redeemed people, we can live confidently, individually, and together, knowing that we have access to God's presence. Verse 19 says we have confidence. Confidence here is not timidity, but boldness to enter the holy places. And what's he expressing? It's a visual picture of the temple. There was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where only the high priest entered, but in close proximity were the holy places. These were the places where the people could go to draw near to God by offering sacrifices. So if you wanted to draw near to God, you needed to be qualified to go into the holy places. But why is that important? Well, if you don't want to serve God... Accessing his presence is not important to you. But if you want to serve God, then it's vital. And only those who want to serve God are part of this new covenant community. Serving God has become the reason you exist. It's what you live for. Your purpose in life is to serve the God who redeemed you and adopted you into his family. So if that's true of you, then living confidently in your access to God is a crucial benefit. It means you can draw near to him. It means you can pray to him. It means you can worship him. It means you can understand his word. It means you can live your life in his presence. Nothing hidden from him and serve him without guilt or shame. And it means you can live that way among his people, serving him confidently by loving him and loving the people around you. But the confidence comes from knowing you're drawing near to God with the right sacrifice. Only Jesus, by his once-for-all sacrifice, can guarantee that God has forgiven our sin and will remember it no more. That's what qualifies us to draw near to God. You come before God on the basis of what he accomplished through Christ. And we understood this from Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is the founder or pioneer in this new covenant community. He opened the new and living way for us. Verse 20. It's not like the old covenant. It's a living way. He gave us the Holy Spirit to bear witness. We've been adopted into his family. The desire to do God's will comes to life in us because he puts it in our hearts and in our minds. So by his word, we know how to serve him. We know what pleases him. We know how to love him. And we know how to love others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. But notice what the author says in verse 20. He opened this way for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What's that mean? Well, the barrier between the holy places and the most holy place in the temple was the curtain. That's what prevented access to the presence of God. But the Gospels report that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That meant Jesus removed the barrier to God. So if we're in Christ, there's nothing that stands between us and God as individuals and as a community. Now, It might seem strange to say that Jesus opened the way through his flesh. But think about what Jesus' death and resurrection means for our present confidence in our future hope. Jesus' flesh is his human body. As we read earlier in the same chapter, in verses 5 through 7, quoting Psalm 40, Jesus was given a human body, to do God's will. He did that voluntarily by living an obedient life in every way, ultimately becoming an offering in that body for the sin of humanity. Jesus still has that body, but now it's a resurrected body. In that body, he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. So he opened the way to God for us in the present. He did that by using his body as a sin sacrifice to purify us for service in God's household. But he also opened the way to God for us in the future. That's because we'll have a resurrected body like his, which has been purified to draw near to God and serve him in his presence. Now, I've never really been handy around the house. I'm not good at making repairs or improvements. So for a long time, I never really invested in any tools to help me with these things. But it's really hard to own a home and avoid fixing things. So one day I bought a power drill. And when I finally used it, I found that having the right tool can make a big difference. In fact, it gave me confidence to do things I didn't think I could do and do them decently well. The confidence Jesus has given us is so much more. The work he finished on the cross gave us everything we need. We can have absolute confidence in that because of Jesus. We have everything necessary to do the job that God has called us to do. We can draw Near to worship him rightly. When we step into this building on Sunday to worship and pray with the family of God, what is our attitude? Are we eager or are we timid? Christ's sacrifice was completely sufficient to forgive us. We can come with boldness and a clear conscience. With Jesus as our Savior, we belong in the gathering of God's people. That's not arrogance, that's confidence in Jesus. Even if we've had a tough week, we can confidently come with a repentant heart to do God's will. He's removed sin's guilt and shame and purified us. To serve him. Another community benefit is secure living, point C. Verse 21 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So the first point has to do with the confidence that we have in the sacrifice of Jesus, but this point has to do with the security we have in Jesus's intercession with the Father on our behalf. This is yet another idea that the author of Hebrews has been developing. Jesus is the great high priest who's faithful over God's house. Think back to chapter three, verse six. We're told that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, then adding and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope so jesus is over god's house and he's faithful to god's purposes so for placing our confidence and hope in jesus we have the security of following a founder or pioneer who's taking us in exactly the right direction for exactly the right reasons There's no reason to question his example or motives. He shows us how to be faithful and to do God's will. And if we're secure in Jesus' position with God, we're also secure that he'll always hold that position without fail. In chapter 7, we're told Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Then it adds, consequently... He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, since Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and forever, we can feel secure that our salvation in him is permanent and everlasting There can be no greater salvation in terms of complete security. Jesus' intercession is the ultimate protection for us. He's the only one who can keep us so that we can continue drawing near to God to serve him and receive eternal life from him. You know, banks are supposed to be a symbol of security in our society. That's why thick stone walls and tall pillars were characteristic of the old bank buildings. And they all had massive safes with heavy doors and locks. They wanted to look secure. But lately we've seen a few bank failures in the news. And when that happens, people panic There's a run on the bank. Everybody wants their money out now. It's a herd mentality, but it's also every man for himself. Because they realize that their savings isn't as safe as they thought it was. And they want to be protected in case the bank fails. But that is not the kind of security we have in Jesus Christ. It's not just appearance of security. To be in Christ is to be fully and completely protected in substance. And all his people are protected, every single one. Christ has not, does not, and will not fail, ever. If you're trusting him completely with everything you have, then you're secure. You can rely on that. We're all relying on that. Now let me speak to those of you who aren't yet a part of God's family. You don't look to Jesus as your Savior, and you don't look to these people around you as your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying you don't feel secure and confident in something. You probably do. You may be confident in your ability to do an important job. Or you're confident in how to raise your children. Or maybe you're confident that you've lived an exemplary life. Could be a number of things. You, almost, you, you may also feel secure. Perhaps you have plenty of money saved up and you're in good health or you feel secure your children will take care of you in your old age, or you're secure that you've left a good legacy behind you. But you need to consider how all that will hold up in the presence of Christ. Because your horizon doesn't end with death. There's something beyond that. As our passage says, the day is approaching. That's a day of Jesus' return. It's a day of salvation for his followers, but it's the day of judgment for those who've rejected him. So here's your call. Come to Jesus and have confidence in him. Come to Jesus and have security in him. Trust him and him alone. Then you can draw near to God salvation and not suffer his judgment because God's judgment is real and Jesus will indeed return and Christians will benefit from Jesus's return they'll receive a reward from him he's promised that but the benefits of salvation in Jesus come with responsibilities that's the culmination of our passage this morning since the things we've just covered in verses 19 through 21 are true confidence and security in Jesus Christ, then what should we do? How should we live? What's our responsibility to God and to one another? How are we we to live as a community in the the present with expectations of a glorious future? When Jesus returns to save us completely, Hebrews is going to answer the big so what question for us in very practical terms. So point two, community responsibilities. So the previous verses used the word since. Maybe you notice that. Since to signal the two benefits of New Covenant community, confidence and security in Christ. Verses 22 through 25 will use the words let us to signal responsibilities of belonging to this community. And the responsibilities are summarized in your outline. A, draw near to God. B, hold fast without wavering, and C, encourage one another. So point A, draw near to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What's meant by hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? It refers to Christ's sacrifice. His blood cleanses us. It's a visual picture of the shadow of the temple ritual that's now become a reality in the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. We're cleansed from sin. So we come to God without guilt or shame because of what Jesus did. Therefore, we have a clear conscience. And how about bodies washed with pure water? Well, oh, it probably refers to baptism, but it could refer to temple washing rituals. In either case, the implication is that the act represents purification. And the reason for the purification is to be prepared to serve God. Jesus Christ saves us from our sin, but as a result of saving us, he calls us to serve God. And we serve God with our bodies. God put his law on our hearts and wrote them on our minds so that we can do his will with our bodies with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And that's what we're called to do. And Jesus sanctifies to do it, us to do it. So here's the point. Since we have confidence and security in Christ, then we can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that in your heart? I mean, drawing near to God. How assured are you that you belong in God's presence? We need this to sink in. Do you hear what the scriptures are saying? If you're a Christian, your guilty conscience has been cleansed. There's now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You deserve God's judgment, but instead, you're in his presence because of Jesus, and justified in being there. So all your insecurities, like, does God love me? My past is really messy, are answered in Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. You come to God with no charge against you, free of guilt and free of shame, we have a clear conscience. And chapter 9 verse 13 is clear about what Jesus has prepared us for. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God." We're prepared to serve. And Don't think of this as something you do all alone. We all take part, and we all have our parts. Remember, in Christ you belong to a community. That means we all draw near to him, pray to him, worship him, and understand his word together. It means we can live our lives in his presence, nothing hidden from him, and serve him without guilt or shame together. And there's much more. Think about the weeks and seasons of life in our church. We enjoy the te- testimon- testimonies of new believers, right, together together. We witness baptisms of believers committed to following Christ together. We partake of communion together. We discuss God's word in life groups together. We connect with our community at the Shad Derby together. We take time to share what the Lord's doing in our lives together. These are the things that the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, do together, And we do it in anticipation of another day when we all expect to serve Christ in resurrected bodies under the leadership of our Savior. Another community responsibility is point B, hold fast without wavering. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. This is now the fourth time in the book of Hebrews that the author has told his listeners to hold fast. And it always involves confidence, our confession, and our hope. So it involves something that we have in the present that helps us look forward to our future. And what's our confession? Well, it's really everything said so far in Hebrews. But to narrow it down more specifically... Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. I'd like you to go here. Chapter 2, verse 17. Now, our confession is that Jesus, through whom God created the world, Hebrews 1, 2, right there, was made like us in every respect, now in chapter 2. That is, he became human, he did that so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That work is finished, but it has ongoing benefits for us in terms of Jesus' intercession with God on our behalf. Look at verse 18. Because, when, because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So in a nutshell, that's our confession. Jesus saved us and is sanctifying us. The conclusion follows in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Go back to chapter 10. And when we consider Jesus, what we need to consider above all is his faithfulness. That's what helps us to hold fast without wavering. It's not because of our faithfulness. This is not a message of self-reliance. It's a message of knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Hasn't he demonstrated that in the pages of Scripture? Didn't he demonstrate that from rising from, like, from rising from the dead? And hasn't he demonstrated that in the new life that he's given you in Christ? Here's the point. Since we have confidence and security in Christ, then we can hold fast without wavering. And perhaps you're thinking about holding fast to Jesus as an individual. But I'm suggesting you expand your thinking. Have you ever considered the personal impact you have on the rest of the family of God by holding fast to Jesus? Ever considered it? Just think about it. Isn't it meaningful to come together as a church body for worship and see the same faces singing God's praises and listening to his word week after week? Doesn't it strengthen our faith to see the same people serving the congregation faithfully throughout the week, even though we're all busy and have other things we could be doing? And this is sincere service from a true heart. I'm not talking about gritting our teeth, pretending to like it, and gutting it out. I'm talking about doing it joyfully while being honest about our faults and our dependency on Jesus. It's going to be challenges and difficulties, of course. But we don't waver. We keep going because we know Jesus is faithful and we're serving Him. Holding fast to Jesus also means we speak about these things. We're not silent. We speak about the confession of our hope to one another. It helps to hear it over and over again. It helps to hear how people are holding fast to Jesus when they're being tempted to give up. But they don't. We're all here to talk about God's faithfulness to his promises and how we relate to that in our lives. Share times just one aspect of this. It takes place all the time, before and after service, in the parking lot, in the park with children, over breakfast, and during baby showers. This is the constant conversation of a new covenant community that's awaiting the return of their faithful Savior. Finally, it's our community responsibility to encourage one another. Point C. Verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the point. Since we have confidence and security in Christ then we can encourage one another to love good works and in meeting together. But how do we do that? I'm sure we'd all like a checklist or a rule book, something that gives us the do's and don'ts so we can simply follow the instructions. But there's a problem with that. We often end up just doing the minimum We meet the requirements, nothing further. Yet, Jesus wants more from us than that. He wants us to do the will of God in everything, like he did. That's why the word consider is important here. We need to consider how to love others according to God's will. Consider how to stir up our brothers and sisters to do the same. It also means we need to consider how to do good works according to God's will and consider how to stir up our brothers and sisters to do the same. That takes thought. That takes study. It takes an understanding of Scripture and a correct application It also takes relationships with other people. This is talking about encouragement based on relationships with other believers. We need to initiate and build relationships with our brothers and sisters in the family of God. We need to know them, how to talk to them about these things. We also need to know how we can best serve them. Being an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ is not passive. It takes a real effort. So don't miss the part of this phrase that tells us to consider. Here's an opportunity to employ our hearts, minds, and bodies in doing something useful for the body of Christ. In some, this calls us to be partakers in one another's holiness. We get to do this. This is our privilege. I mean, fruitful involvement in other people's lives so that we're all being changed to become more like Jesus. And the context for this encouragement within God's family is meeting together. Let's be clear it's not a suggestion, but a command. Remember verse 24, began, let us. His family members were compelled by God's word to be with one another on a regular basis. So if we don't come to church often, it's going to be difficult to do these things well. And if we don't come to church at all, It's going to be practically impossible to do them. So meeting together is really important. But not because we're taking attendance. Doing God's will means we have to be able to relate to Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we also have to be able to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. And all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And we shouldn't miss the most consequential aspect of neglecting to meet together. When we walk away from the people of God, we're on the path to apostasy. That behavior is serious. It's turning from Jesus Christ as our Savior to find, quote-unquote, salvation in other things. Abandoning the confidence and security that we have in him. How does that manifest itself in our lives? We stop meeting with the family of God. We don't want to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the environment of God's people living expectantly together is not appealing at all. Because if we're living in apostasy, the last thing that we want to see is the return of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that never becomes true of any of us, that we would all heed the warnings in Hebrews as believing Christians. So, Let's all live expectantly together. Let's heed and take seriously everything that we're hearing in Hebrews. Truths, warnings, encouragements, all of it. And let's draw together, and draw most importantly, draw near to God together with confidence to serve him now by the power of his spirit looking forward to a day when we'll be serving him in a greater way. So I'm sure we can all imagine what it's like to have a paid-off mortgage and celebrate outright ownership of our home. Right? I'm sure we can, we'd all like to have a home where nothing ever goes wrong or needs fixing. I'm sure we'd like to have a home where all, we have all the resources needed for improvements to make it beautiful. I'm sure we'd enjoy having the best neighbors in the world, able to live together in perfect harmony. As God's family, we have something far greater than that. Jesus will come and bring a better reward for us. That will be our salvation. We can experience it now, but this is just a taste of what's to come. Let's all look together to Jesus and serve him well as a church. And all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. This is such a great salvation. And you have not left us as orphans, No, we have a Father, we have a Savior, who gave us the ultimate salvation, the salvation we have confidence in, and security in, and intercession before your presence. Lord, may we draw near to that presence with confidence in Christ. May we understand and appreciate the security we have in what Christ is doing for us and how he's sanctifying us. And Lord, would you help us to meet together faithfully so that we look forward to that day when we'll be with you in eternity, ready to serve you, purified to serve you. In Christ's name, amen.